Good morning, this is Laura Huey and you're joining me for Sociology 9009, the uh, graduate seminar on evidence-based policy here at the University of Western Ontario. Today, we are following up on the previous discussion. This is now Communicating for Different Audiences, Part 2. We talked a little bit about, well, we talked a lot last time about presentations. Now I want to look at other ways that you can communicate with an audience what's available to you, what, you know, and tips and tricks to think of when you are using other, for example, social media platforms. So let's get cracking. Let's start off with blogs. I love blogs. What is a blog? For the 0% of the audience that has no idea what a blog is, it's a website or a web page that's updated on some type of a regular basis that contains contents that readers will find perhaps inspirational. So it might be a diet blog, uh, a um, lifestyle blog, a, you know, there's a lot of fashion blogs I know, or educational, which of course is what we're particularly interested in. A blog can have different purposes such as raising awareness of an individual cause or a brand or establishing oneself as an expert in a particular field. I think that one of the best ways that you can use your blog is to create, if you will, an online journal related to your research and research interests. And this is something I've done on my own personal website. I actually have, well actually I run multiple blogs, but one I have a blog that's just dedicated to policing research and it's for a general audience, particularly though police practitioners. So in that blog, I use it as an opportunity to talk about what the current research is on different topics, what some of the strengths and limitations are of different research techniques for doing policing research. But the key is to make your blog interesting and understandable. Let me just see what I've got here. Uh, key elements of successful blogs. First of all, writing about what you're passionate about. If you're not feeling it, then you're not communicating that to your audience, whether that's a presentation, a blog, a podcast, or what have you. You've got to be doing topics that you really want to put out there because you think that they're important to speak on. Offer value. Now, a lot of times when we're talking about blogs, we're talking in value. A lot of blogs have been monetized. So if you're a social media influencer, you might have a monetized blog. For me, as a researcher, how I interpret this idea of offering value is make it worthwhile for somebody to come and spend time reading your thoughts on, on the research or on issues related to public policy and so on. Make it worthwhile. Offer value. Good marketing. Uh, you've got, it's not enough just to put a blog out. You've got to be able to advertise and let people know that your blog is available. I use social media for that. In particular, I use Twitter and LinkedIn, which I'll talk a little bit more about shortly. But when I put out a, when I started my blog and when every time I put out a blog, I advertise it through those two mediums. I also have a list that you, you sign up for my blog so that when there's new blog entries, it automatically goes out via email to people who've signed up for it. And one of the things I found quite interesting, and I had no idea because sometimes we, we, we don't know, I wrote a blog one time on Indigenous policing in Canada and the lack of research 
uh, on this t a very important issue. And what I discovered accidentally, if you will, is that people were basically um, emailing each other within different networks saying, oh, you should take a look at this blog. So sometimes good marketing is just word of mouth. And how I found out was somebody emailed me and said, oh, I was referred to read your blog and I thought it was really interesting, which explained why my numbers for that blog jumped up. Some weeks I'd get like 50 readers and that particular week it was over 300, which is pretty damn good for the community that I work in. Encourage interaction. Now I'm terrible at this. I uh, like to put, I'm one of those people, I've said this before, I am just, I said what I said, I'm done. And I feel that way with my blog. I don't allow, I click off the option that allows people to post comments and, but you can like heart it if you will. You can like, like the blog, but that's about it. In social media, of course, people can and do, when you put a tweet out, for example, saying that you have posted this blog, people can and do comment. As well, that happens on LinkedIn. To be honest with you, I've turned off my notifications on LinkedIn. Part of the thing as well about, the, about marketing and interaction is that I want to encourage people to, to read what I have to say it's not that I'm not interested in what people have to say back, but unfortunately the area that I work in generates, uh, it generates a fair amount of um, interesting, shall we say, responses. And in one particular case, or a couple of particular cases, I've actually had people that have engaged in what would be borderline stalkerish behavior. So I personally, I don't really, um, want to encourage interaction. However, especially if you're if you are working in an area that's a little bit less controversial or for whatever reason doesn't attract people that want to like follow you everywhere and comment everywhere and then email you and call you, which has happened to me, call me multiple times on my office phone, uh, then you know you might want to, you know, not you might want to turn off your interaction buttons. By the way, um, one of the things, oh, I'll, I'll come back to this. I'll just keep going and I'll hopefully remember to come back. Okay, lots of images. I like to see very colorful images that are evocative of what it is that the person's talking about that might make me stop and think. Images do a couple things. And by the way, I'm not unique in liking the images. First of all, they, block, they, they um, break up walls of text. Nobody wants to read a blog that is a literal wall of text. So breaking it up using good spacing, you know, with, with pictures and graphs and things like that, that just make it a little less clunky and chunky uh, is a good thing. And again, in terms of marketing, using images is also a great idea. Then easy reading. So I have a blog that's actually coming out. <laughs> I have two blogs I'm running. One is uh, my personal blog and another one is a hashtag CrimCom blog, which is for uh, science, social science communication for criminologists. We run a blog and I'm probably gonna forget the name of this thing. Let's see if I can remember. Ah, darn it. Um, it is called, I wanna say GoFundMe. It's not called GoFundMe. I will, I swear I will remember the name. It will come to me. There's a index that is available, fog, gun fog, something fog index, 
starts with a G. Go fund, go fog, gun fog, gun, something like that. Gunder fog index, something. Anyway, Google will hopefully help you out with this. And what it does is it takes your writing and it rates it on, uh, based on um, the sentence length and based on the number of complex words that you use and gives you a score that tells you where you're at in terms of readability and or accessibility, I should say, for, for an audience. So uh, I had a grad student that discovered this index and the advice that she was given for writing her grant proposal was to write at a 10 and her work was at a 17, which is actually not bad. I, I put a piece of academic writing through this index just to see what the score was and it was 48.8. My blogs, uh, I tested a couple of my, a couple of paragraphs from my blogs. My, my policing research blog is about, is an 8.8. .8, so I come in under the 10. So easy reading. Nobody wants to, especially if it's out for a general audience, nobody wants to read a jargon filled manifesto where they have to go to graduate school to figure out what, what the hell you're talking about. So look up this index and test some of your writing to see if you are, have pitched it at an appropriate level. You know, your appropriate level might be a 17, depends on who your target audience is, but you know, this, this tool will help you figure that out. Interesting titles. And by the way, this advice doesn't just go for blogs. It should also go for academic writing as well. Some of the most boring freaking titles I've ever seen. Try to come up with something that is catchy. It might be a play on words. It might be ironic or humorous. Uh, it might be a quote that resonates with people. It might be some type of a metaphor or imagery and that makes people stop and go, wow, this sounds really interesting. I title, for example, one of my blogs, this is why we can't have nice things. And I showed what appeared to be a vandalized bathroom. And it was basically about uh, the politics around the type of research that I do. But that type of that type of title and imagery together would make people stop ideally and think, oh, maybe this is something I want to read about. Another piece of advice, regular updates. Now, this is, your mileage is going to vary on this. When I first started, for about the first year and a half, two years I did my personal blog, I was uh, doing pretty much weekly updates. Now, because I write on two different blogs, for both of them, I write when I feel that I have something to say. I don't want to produce content just for the sake of producing content. I want to produce content that I'm actually passionate about, that I really want to have say it, something that I want to communicate to an audience. So you might not, you might want to do weekly blogs. You might want to do monthly blogs. You might want to just write when, when it's uh, important for you to write. That said, if you want to build an audience, it does help to do regular updates until you get a pretty decent sized audience. And then of course, well-written and spell and grammar check. Now a blog is not a publication in the sense that uh, uh, in the sense of a journal article where we're going to have editors that are, uh, you know, spell checking, grammar checking, looking for awkward phrasing, trying to find clearer ways to, to put things. That said, it should not be so heavily fraught with grammar and punctuation issues that 
people just shake, you know, and spelling mistakes, and people are like, come on. Because at the, at the end of the day, you want people to take your work seriously as an expert in a policy field. So yes, you can use some informal language. Yes, I uh, joke around a bit in my blogs, uh, but that said, I want to be taken seriously enough. So I do care about spell spelling mistakes. I do care about punctuation. I do care about grammar. I will typically check it before I post it. Then once I post it, I wait a little while, then I go back, I reread it, I always catch a little mistake or two, and then fix it. So I would highly suggest that you, you do those things. Oh, I know what I wanted to say about a blog, about blogs. There's different ways to blog. I have my own personal website that I use, I created through Wix, which I find, you know, most of these like GoDaddy, Wix, and so on, they have templates that you can use to create a website quite fairly easily. I think the cost of my website is about 150 bucks a year, I want to say, including the domain. I might be wrong about that. It's around there. It's not, it wasn't super duper duper expensive, but that way it also wasn't, you know, free either. Let's be clear. You can do a free Wix website, I believe, but it's got very limited functionality. So it, it might not necessarily work for you. There are sites in which you can create your own blogs that are like free blogging, uh, which might be something that might be of interest to you. As an academic researcher, I do feel it's important to have your own website though. It's one of the things I strongly encourage through CrimCom because it gives you an opportunity for people to get to know a little bit about you and more about your research because this is a showcase for you. I also say it's a great place to do self-archiving for papers that you have that are, going, that are coming out in a journal, but that you have the option to self-archive a, a, a copy so that people that can't get behind the paywall to access your work can access it through your website. So most of the, uh, pretty much all of these websites that you can potentially have, I'll have blogging functions and they're fairly easy to use. If I can figure it out, you can figure it out. The one thing I will say, a little tip about using Wix, the, when you use blogs, whatever the first picture is in your blog is the picture that becomes the profile pic on the blog. So uh, if you are doing a blog and you're having get, guest hosts and you want their picture to come up next to the title and abstract, then their picture has to be up top if it's down at the bottom, then any other pictures in between will come up. So that's a little annoying thing to me. That, yeah, I was annoyed. Anyway, let's talk about Twitter and tweeting. I am a, a big Twitter user. I know that people that are, you know, 30 and younger tend to like Instagram more. And uh, I personally hate Instagram. <laughs> I'm not an Instagrammer. It's not natural for me. Um, I like to communicate not so much with pictures, but with with text, and so and also uh, public policy makers, practitioners, uh, community groups, and so on who tend uh, tend to skew a little older than 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 the twenties. We the social media platform that you typically see people using is Twitter. It's certainly, in my case, there's a lot of Twitter activity. In terms of Twitter, we're lucky. We used to have about 160 characters. I think it's like 280 now. I might be wrong. I said this last time. I still didn't check. 260, 280. 
But here's the thing with Twitter, what I love about it. It forces you to take complex ideas and keep it simple. Picks help. I like, I also like to do GIFs. Being funny helps. It, you know, you can present research in a way that's kind of fun or kind of funny. Animal pics really help. This is something we know from a ton of research on media communications. People like animals. Twitter, sorry, uh, Facebook, the most popular, well actually I should say YouTube, the most popular videos are cats. People love animals. And in fact, on Twitter, sometimes what you'll see is people just posting, I'm having a bad day, share your dog pic, share your cat pic, share your guinea pig pic. So animal pictures really do help. I like GIFs because they move. And so I like to see just not just a picture, but when there's some sort of activity online, some sort of action, it catches my eye. Here's something that a lot of people don't know. You can actually create your own GIFs using GIF makers and show, use those GIFs to showcase your research. Fantastic idea. What you can do is you can take a couple of slides. I would say no more than five. In fact, ideally two or three slides on PowerPoint with your research and some cool pictures. And you can use a GIF convert, you can use GIF converter software either through app or on your desktop and turn your PowerPoint into a GIF that you can then post to showcase your research. And it becomes like a little set of PowerPoint slides. So that's a pretty cool idea, I think, uh, to get people to just have a very quick uh, exposure to your work. And really, for most people that have grown up with, you know, the internet, you know, it's not that difficult to do these things. The software certainly makes it easy. I'm an old person and I can figure this out. With Twitter and tweeting, the more you engage, the more you use it to engage with others, the bigger your network grows. So I, uh, I started out, actually I didn't have a personal account. My very first Twitter account was for Canada. Oh, there we go. My Hang on. We got a dog crisis. I'll be right back. have no appreciation for my podcasting or my lecture taping. None. All right, I've, I've hopefully successfully bribed them. We'll see how this goes. Um, so yeah, I was saying I started out with uh, CANSAB, which, you know, it took a lot of work. But what was interesting is, like in the early days, I had to really actively engage in it. And I probably spent way, way too much time, I probably still do spend way too much time on Twitter. But what happened was, over time, I built up enough of a following that when I created my own Twitter account, which I did, because there's sometimes there were personal things I wanted to say, 
or jokes I wanted to make that wouldn't have been appropriate or topics I wanted to like and so on. So I created my own Twitter account. Um, of course, I made my Twitter account as professional as possible, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But what I found is that there were knock-on effects from CANCEP, so that increased the number of followers, but also the fact that I was out there actively engaging also helped me increase the number of followers and therefore the range uh, for my potential audience. So one of the ways that I recommend people do this is try to have some personality. If all your tweets are about hockey, for example, uh, then nobody gets to find out about you as a researcher. But hockey aficionados will probably follow you. Uh, I don't say don't have personal stuff, pics of your dog, pic, you know, rooting for your hockey team or talking about the new whatever you're doing. I think that's not only fine, I think that's great, it gives people a flavor for who you are. But if it's exclusively that, then that's going to be too much. It, it sort of doesn't help you in terms of reaching your goal. So on my screen, for those of you that are listening to this in podcast, I have some examples from the Wyoming, Minnesota Police Department about using humor. Uh, these are examples of uh, what jokes about undercover 420 stings. Well, in the US, uh, 420, of course, or it used to be in Canada as well until we legalized marijuana, but 420 what is, is the term for marijuana. And so, they were talking about on 4, 420 being April 20th, which is marijuana day. Uh, they were talking about like these jokes. One is, uh, they, these are traps to catch marijuana users, I guess, involving uh, Cheetos. So we've got one example of a little homemade trap that you might use with a raccoon. It's some Cheetos where you pull the string and I guess, you know, the, the marijuana user gets trapped under the box. Another one that I thought was pretty funny was a police officer with a net and then there's a whole bunch of Cheetos and Doritos and a copy of Grand Theft Auto there to lure the marijuana user. Now the reality of this is, is that yes, this is a serious public policy issue, this health issue and so on and so forth, but in order to make a point about not driving while intoxicated, police services on 420 put out this messaging and it's meant to be lighthearted, but also a little bit serious in the sense that, yeah, don't drive when you're intoxicated. Stay home and eat your Cheetos, I guess. So uh, I put up two examples here from CANSAB back in the early days when I started out running this account. This is January 2016. I put a picture of a little um, tiger cub putting his little paw out and it said, okay, we don't have any tigers. However, we do have evidence-based policing. Join up and add our website. So another one is I put up a picture of a beaver yawning and I said, our exec is busy beavering away at developing some new long-term plans. And, um, you know, again, using animals to sort of get people to stop is like, seriously, who doesn't like a cute little tiger cub, right? Uh, CVs. Okay, so the example that I put up here of a CV is obviously not appropriate for academia. For those of you that can't see this, it's an actor's uh, card. 
pictures of this actor and he says earnest and energetic leading man just finished playing a rapist in a film i'd love to audition for whatever the role is daryl and it looks like yeah i'm not sure that you know uh yeah i'm not sure that for, yeah i have much to say about this but first of all it looks like daryl didn't graduate from grade three because of his printing just saying I'm also not sure that, you know, pointing out that you played a rapist in a film is a great selling feature. Anyway, I now have a, an example, this is very outdated, of my CV. A good academic CV is a great selling feature on your website, on, you could put it up, post it up on your blog, you could link to it on social media. There's all sorts of different things you can do with that. What I find over and over again, though, is that most people don't actually do, don't know how to construct a really good academic CV. And so um, I actually gave somebody advice. They sent me their CV for some reason. I gave unsolicited advice and said, you know, this is an academic CV. The most important thing that people want to know is you're publishing. So why is that on the last page of your CV instead of up front? These are things that are important to know because if you're going, again, you're representing yourself as an expert, make sure you have a, a, a CV that screams, I'm an expert. So in my particular case, and of course, you know, I've been, let's be clear, I've been around for like uh, more than 20 years. My CV is going to look a lot different than yours, but the basic style is probably I think it, I, this is the style that I used as a grad student and still continue to use over 20 years later. First of all, all the personal details about, you know, your gender, your nationality, your, uh, where you live and all that on the CV is unnecessary unless you are a foreign uh, born person applying for a job in say the US or Canada and citizenship is an issue. Other than that, in which case, quite frankly, you put that in the cover letter. I think most of us that look at that, we, we just go right past that. Nobody pays attention to that. And quite frankly, it looks like filler to create more space on the page. I say leave all the personal stuff out. It should be pretty obvious, it, certainly if not um, from your cover letter, then from, from other, you know, from the attached email, yada, yada, if you're applying for a job and so on. So. Academic positions, I start off with. Uh, any academic distinctions, if you were, if you were the um, undergraduate honor roll student, you should put that down. I will give a piece of advice, um, more, more unsolicited advice. I guess it's all unsolicited advice. Do not, if you are a ten, tenure track or tenure professor, leave, leave off stuff from when you were an undergraduate or graduate student. Because I've seen grant applications where people ref, like people who are full professors reference things from their graduate student days. And I'm like, dude, haven't you done anything since? Like, come on. So part of the marketing too is you don't want to market yourself as, you're not marketing yourself as an undergraduate. You're, you're not marketing yourself as a graduate student if you're presenting yourself as an expert in a public policy field, you don't want to do that. You want to market yourself as an expert. 
So, you know, think about the, the, what types of academic distinctions and when and where it's appropriate to reference them. So if you look at my academic distinctions, like, I, oh, damn it. Uh, I don't have anything that's older than 2013 in my particular case. And um, these are all awards that I got as a tenured professor, not anything from the 1990s when I was an undergraduate. Wow, that's, that's sad. That's a long time ago. Okay. Um, by the way, for anybody that's asking as a graduate student about academic positions, uh, I would say I would lead with a doctoral, or a doctoral student or a master's student rather than RA or TA for an academic position. And in fact, in this section, it's a good op you could put in the name of your thesis or dissertation, your supervisor, and maybe if there's some prestigious people on your su supervision committee, you might want to reference that with a date for when it's expected that you're going to have completed that. If you're adjunct faculty somewhere, that's an academic position, you want to put that in. So those are the types of things I would leave with. Now, people often say, well, why don't you put TA or RA? And I, because a TA or an RA is a subsidiary position to your primary position, doctoral, doctoral candidate, master student, and so on. And actually, I would put RA and TA in the relevant researching and teaching sections of my CV. So publications. So uh, I always. Typically, it goes books. It should go books, peer-reviewed publications in journals, non-peer-reviewed publications in journals, working papers, and then other types of research output. So in, in my case, it, it might be uh, podcasts or it might possibly be my blogs. That's the research, uh, sorry, that is a publication section of my CV. Then we get into, and I don't think I, no, I didn't. Then we get into uh, the research section where you talk about funding you, that you've received or applied for. You might talk about um, research projects that you're on or research assistant, uh, research assistant experience. Hang on, it's coffee time. Let me slug some. Then we get into teaching. So this is where you might put in things that you did relating related to teaching, being a teaching assistant. And then the final section is service. So things that you've done, perhaps service in relation to academic service. So you sat on a committee or a panel. It might be the case that you um, helped put together some type of an activity on campus that's service related. So that is essentially how I put my CV together. If you want an example, it's up on my website, lhuey.net. There are other, and the other thing too is if that, if my format just doesn't work for you, Google, Google is your friend. Google and look to see what other people, especially people in your particular field and, and discipline are, you know, the people that, whose career that you admire, go take a look at what their CV looks like. And look at a few different types of examples of how people put construct these things. LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Oh boy, LinkedIn. 
Common mistakes on LinkedIn. First of all, typos. LinkedIn is a professional network. It's a, it is meant to be a social media platform for professionals to connect. Now that said, there's some strange things that go on on LinkedIn. Like I've been, I've had like guys basically try to date me through LinkedIn because, and it's not a dating website. It is not Tinder people, right? The other thing too is sometimes I'll see, you know, there's a lot of, or political content. That's not what I'm there for. Um, you know, pictures of sexy people in sexy clothes. I'm not there for that, right? So that's not what it's meant for. For LinkedIn, I would suggest that you, first of all, make sure you get rid of all the typos. I've seen some, I have seen some biographies where I'm like, this is so full of type, like who in their right mind would hire you? You can't string a sentence together. And people go, oh, well, you're just picking on non-native English speakers. No, oh no, I'm not. Native English speakers do a fantastic job of having typos and spelled in grammar and everything else. The thing is, you have software that allows you to do spelling and punctuation check. It's called Word. Use it. And then after you've verified your content, make sure there's it's accurate and not full of typos, then post it to LinkedIn. Here's another common mistake. No picture. Having a picture, people are visual creatures. We like to see other people. We pick up cues. We think we pick up cues. They're useful from looking at people. Think about it. Any of you that have ever been on Tinder or one of those dating apps, how many of you liked a profile or switched, swept, swept, left, right, whatever the hell it is you do with that, um, with, when the picture, person didn't have a picture? I always think if you don't have a picture, what are you hiding? And I don't mean like in terms of that, but like maybe this is a fake profile. And believe it or not, on LinkedIn, there's fake profiles. There's people that pretend to be venture capitalists who are not. There's one guy that started, like, wanted to befriend me on LinkedIn or whatever it is, join my network, who was clearly a fake. Like, yeah. He, he, was, he had stolen somebody's picture, speaking of the wrong kind of picture, which is the next thing. He'd stolen somebody's picture. It was pretty obvious. I've never seen a CEO of a venture corporation that looked like a model. Like like a model from the pages of GQ. Like So immediately I was like, wait a second. And then I started digging down and then this company didn't even exist. So no picture or the wrong kind of picture. If your picture does not match your bio, we you are sending out vibes of, ooh, not trustworthy. Here's the other thing too. Don't put up a picture of you water skiing. Do not pick, put up a picture on LinkedIn of you fishing or downing beers or you know any kind of casual type thing or in your workout gear. Unless, of course, you're a professional fitness trainer or a fitness model. In which case, that would be appropriate. But if you're selling yourself as an expert, this is not the way to go. You need a professional headshot. Or at least something that looks like a professional headshot. I went and paid 75 bucks and went to a professional photographer and had a couple of pictures taken. And that is the headshot that I use on my LinkedIn, which is also handy because when you do media work, 
particularly if you're doing op-ed pieces or pieces in online magazines and journals, they often ask you for a headshot. And they want a professional headshot with the right resolution. So it's, it is worth the investment either to go and have that done or to at least think about you know making sure you've got a good picture with good headshot. Because guess what? This stuff goes out on the internet. There's pictures of me from years ago that I'm horrified. My husband's like, can you not get the internet to take that picture down? You look terrible. Uh, no, I cannot. Once it's out there, you have no control. So make sure that if you put pictures up professionally, they're pictures that you want to see 5, 10, 15 years from now. And by the way, the cost for me to get the headshot done was 75 bucks. It's probably more now. For me, it was a good investment, but if you know something that's really good with uh, a good camera, really good at taking pictures, do it. Uh, here's another one, LinkedIn, blog profile headline. <sighs> one of the pieces of advice I tell my students over and over again is please don't put, I'm a TA, I'm a teaching assistant at the University of Western Ontario. Again, you're a doctoral candidate, you're a master's student, you're something of that nature. You might also be adjunct faculty at a college or university. And you want to put that up front and then you want to talk about in your headline, you want people to go, oh, wait. So uh, mine is professor of sociology, I think it used to be executive director of CANSEB, uh, professor of sociology. So, if you're interested in evidence-based policing, if you're interested in policing research, you might Google that and my LinkedIn account will come up. So you want a headline that if somebody's Googling for you, they're gonna get you. So emphasize, you know, a doctoral researcher working on healthcare in aging populations, period. Great, concise, accurate, and Googleable. Uh, here's another common mistake. You're not reaching out to the right people to build your network. Here's a pro tip. Don't befriend your friends and professors on LinkedIn to build your network unless those are people that you actually really want to follow professionally because they have something to offer you. Every year I get friend requests from students and more often than not, I turn it down. And the reason why is because they're not working in my area. They're not having any advantage to having me in their network. Instead, you should be focusing on reaching out to key influential people in your field or discipline. And you should be connecting to them and hopefully building your network through them. Here's another common mistake. No summary. There's an opportunity to provide a bio and uh, sometimes people don't do that. You should provide a bio. Again, clear, concise, accurate, and highlights what it is about you that other people would be interested in from a professional point of view. Uh, no details. You know what, there's like 8 million boxes to tick on LinkedIn from projects that you're working on, collaborators, areas of expertise that you have, um, your educational background, uh, all that kind of stuff. And people oftentimes don't take advantage of those fields and fill them out. It is worthwhile to do that. 
Common mistake, I've said this before, no politics, no dating. Do not use this as Tinder, and if people try to uh, slide into your DMs, as they say, uh, delete or ignore. I just, I ignore. In fact, I've turned off, as I've said before, I've turned off the, um, the notification process for LinkedIn so that if you send me an email or DM, it might be weeks before I notice. And oh, this is my personal pet peeve, but it's one that I share with many, 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 many other people. Don't use stupid terms like thought leader or disruptive thinker. People think that using these terms sets them out. First of all, most people that consider themselves a thought leader are not people that anybody else would ever consider a thought leader. A thought leader is somebody who basically sets trends within their area where they come up with ideas and uh, innovative technologies and strategies and techniques and so on that other people in the field copy. If you're not doing that, you're not a thought leader. Don't call yourself one. This is, uh, and I see it over and over again. Or here's another one, disruptive thinker. Well, in some circles, disruptive thinker might sort of stand out and be like, oh, okay, well, this is fantastic. You're somebody that, you know, challenges the status quo, which, of course, we've had an entire lecture on how well that goes over. Um, disruptive thinker in many contexts just means you're a pain in the butt. And also, what does that mean? Like, what is your expertise disrupting thinking? That's not, that tells me nothing. It's ambiguous. Uh, meaningless jargon. You should have uh, confidence is good, but arrogance is not good. So somebody who had something to say on my LinkedIn account at one point uh, had a bio that said, ready for this? Serial entrepreneur, cloud and technology evangelist, thought leader, writer and speaker, managed services tech proponent, and voice of reason in the tech sector. First of all, not only does that sound arrogant, but it also it sounds vaguely delusional. Like I've never heard of you, and you're referring to yourself as an evangelist, a thought leader, and a voice of reason. Okay, think about this for a sec. How many of you be a little bit off-put by somebody describing themselves that way? I think, as I said, confidence is good, but this kind of self-promotion, especially for Canadians, we're not huge self-promoters. So this kind of strikes us as, strikes most Canadians, I would guess, certainly me and every other class I've ever taught on this, people are like, wow, that's kind of, you know, Sounds kind of jerky, to be honest. I was going to say something else, but we'll keep it going. Um, inappropriate pics. So in my, for those of you that are listening to this through podcast, what you can see is I've got a picture up here of somebody doing, uh, who's, who's public relations and communications, and she's doing a kissy face to the camera. Okay, that's like, like this is, that's not appropriate. If you're a public relations expert, then you should know that on a professional website, kissy face is probably not going to sell it. Here's another guy I've blacked out most of his information. He's a professional 
who is posing apparently at spring, ba spring break with two cans of beer on his face. Okay. Um, here's another one that I was like, oh, please. This, this person actually tried to um, friend me or whatever it's called on LinkedIn. <sighs> there says, Inner Architects, Performance Strategies for the Mind. And it's a picture of them holding what appears to be a brain. Okay, this is not working for me. First of all, I don't need an inner architect, nor do I need performance strategies for the mind. And people who hold brains, I'm a criminologist, that just screams serial killer to me. In terms of stupid titles, here's an example of a stupid title. This guy on LinkedIn, his uh, headline says, describes himself as the coolest guy in Nashville. Google it to see for yourself. And then there's a picture of him wearing a suit and tie because that screams cool to me. I don't know about you. That was sarcasm, by the way. Uh, he is with a media company and previously he was with Artesian Water. This is not, and he has 377 connections, which tells me he, if he was the coolest guy in Nashville, I would think that he would have more than 370. I have like 3,700 and some odd connections, and I'm not the coolest chick in London, Ontario. So again, don't give yourself a stupid title. I request a number of, uh, sorry, I request, I reject a number of requests, and so do many other people, and we are, we can be a little bit idiosyncratic in terms of how we do this, but actually I have a strategy. Um, I if I don't see you as being somebody in my professional network that I might want to communicate with, I am not going to accept your request. So I declined a request from a fellow at CSU, CSU at Toronto Community Housing Canada. First of all, I don't know what CSU means. He's a CSU at Toronto Community Housing Canada. I mean, I could look that up, but I'm not that, I'm like too lazy. Like, I'm not going to look that up. If I don't know what something is, don't use an acronym in your, in your title that I can't understand. Because based on Toronto Community Housing, I don't see how we connect. I don't work on housing issues. Here's another one. This fellow is in quality control in Belgium. Well, I don't have anything to do with quality control in Belgium. Why would, I, why would we want to be linked in? Because remember, when you're linked in, you're going to read their stuff as much as they're going to read yours. Uh, here's another one I declined. Administration and receptionist at the master group. I don't see how, unless you're a budding criminologist, which should be in there, or you're interested in moving into policing research, I don't see how we would connect. And my personal favorite is this woman who, whose name, who apparently her name is, her last name is Dragon Slayer of Myths, trademark. Her name is Michelle Elise, Dragon Slayer of Myths, trademark. That's the name. So already my hackles are going up. She is the CEO founder of Resolve to Evolve, trademark. Dragon Slayer of Myths, trademark. Neuropsych behaviorist in the greater Denver area. Well, I do not need a Dragon Slayer of Myths. And I am not resolved to evolve, trademark. So, and I'm not gonna go get treatment from you in Denver 
or let's be honest here in London, Ontario. So why am why would we what do we have in common? How will you help me get to the next level in terms of building my network? Uh, so now I've put up my LinkedIn account, which I clearly need to. Uh, it's been updated since the slide that I've got up. I should probably put a new slide up. Uh, but it's just my name is Laura Huey, not Laura Huey, Killer of Dreams trademark. My title, Professor of Sociology. At the time, I was director of the Canadian Society of Institute, uh, Institute Canadian Society of Evidence Based Policing. That has changed. Uh, my institutional affiliations were University of Western Ontario, and at the time, I was a visiting scholar at the Institute of Criminology at the University of Cambridge. And of course, where do I live? So simple to the point. And on that note, you're going to be happy here. This was a short discussion today. It is coffee time. Let's all get our caffeinated beverage of choice, and I'll catch 